Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back into the Buster Show. Today we have a very special guest, Graham Bensinger. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks for having me, Buster. Long time. We've been talking about this, so glad we could do it. I know. Congrats on the uh, on the new season of In Depth. Uh, super exciting. What what have you learned from season one till now that you would go back and tell yourself? in season one of the show? Uh, probably everything takes longer than I'd like it to. You know, I, I've, I've even back then wanted the show to be a huge success, a huge hit, have a massive audience. And uh, even though the, the show's grown a lot over, you know, the past 10, 11 years, I think we do like three million uh, TV viewers an episode, two and a half million digital views an episode. It's still nowhere close to where I, I want it to be. And, right. you know, you just, I just need to tell myself to recognize stuff doesn't happen overnight. Uh, you know, work hard, keep your head down, keep grinding. And that's really kind of all you can control. Mm, that makes perfect sense. So talk to me because we were talking right before this about how you're in St. Louis and you have a real team, like over 10 people, which is incredible. It makes sense for, for kind of the scale of what you're doing and the production required, because a lot of people do interviews like myself, but I'm here on Zoom. You're actually, you know, filming with the people at the places you're traveling for it all. Talk to me about when you realized you had to have a team to help you with everything that you wanted to do and what that's yeah. Well, so I, yeah, I mean, get a little context. I'm 34. I started when I was in eighth grade with an internet radio show I created and then was just lucky that a hobby and childhood passion ended up turning into a, a, a career. Uh, I, I left college after a year and a half. I was, you know, freelancing for ESPN going into my freshman year of college, did that for a few years, then left because I got a good opportunity with NBC Sports and was hosting a Sirius XM radio show. But then uh, fast forward to the last financial crisis. This is uh, March 2009, height of it. Um, I get laid off my uh, NBC Sports digital video interview show that I was hosting. Uh, and I always struggled with the fact that I would do these you know, hour long sit down interviews, work with a producer after the interview, but I never had control over what aired. So more often than not, what would happen is I'd conduct a, a hour long interview and 30 seconds of the most controversial stuff would make TV. And so I get laid off. I know nobody's going to give me the type of platform that I want to tell long form stories because I don't have the resume to warrant. And so I just decide, let's see if I can figure out how to do this on my own. So you know, I, I travel the country signing on an ABC, NBC, CBS, or Fox station in as many cities around the U.S. as I can. I sign on the advertisers myself. I employ the people that uh, edit and film the show. Um, and, you know, we do everything in-house. But it was really out of necessity. And so we're in season 11 now. Uh, after the first few seasons of the show, to answer your question, I, I had recognized that I'd grown it as much as I could doing almost everything on my own. Uh, I mean, we, we had few people, but we needed to hire a lot more people and produce more episodes. And there's just a lot of costs associated with that, that I had no idea. I mean, when I first started doing this, all I knew how to do was conduct a half decent interview and book a guest. And so, you know, it got to the place where I'm like, all right, either I'm going to go all in, and you know invest everything i can financially to try and get over this first hump or i probably need to find a, a real job because it will otherwise just kind of peter out uh and so end up deciding i'm gonna go for it uh had no idea if it would work uh end up going four hundred thousand dollars in debt um almost personally bankrupt myself but able was able to ultimately get through it. And ever since then, it's slowly continued to grow. That's amazing. And that's, that's wild. I love that, you know, you start in, in eighth grade, because I think that's, you know, one of the big things that for anybody, 
doing anything really. It's the earlier you get started, the better. And you dropping out of college after a year and a half, you already have six years experience, you right. know, instead of like somebody out of college who's just starting and they have one year experience at 23, you had six years at 20. Yeah. Right. Uh, I, yeah. I, I, to be honest, it didn't even dawn on me until I was meeting with a college counselor this, my senior year of high school that this hobby of mine could even be a career. I, you know, when I was in high school, thought I was going to be a lawyer or wanted to be, you know, a baseball player at the tail end of middle school. Right. But it, it just, it didn't even dawn on me. And um, uh, yeah. And so, uh, you know, strange how that happens. It really is funny. Yeah, I remember I, the moment for me was I didn't make my uh, JV basketball team. I didn't make it my sophomore year of high school, not my freshman year. So I was like, all right, let's call this a day. Yeah, <laughs> Did right. you ever have a moment like that? Well, I mean, the extent of my athletic ability was uh, I played C team in sixth grade basketball. Okay. Um, actually, my uh, sixth grade uh, – basketball coach is J.J. Watt's agent. And so that was how we booked J.J. Uh, Watt for an episode of the show. I played um, JV baseball freshman year, fr freshman and sophomore year, uh, a high school uh, water polo and cross country freshman year. But <laughs> after that, it was, yeah, I was horrible in uh, everything. And the, the, the school, like we were required. Not everything. I mean, we were required to do two sports a season in school. And then I was able to kind of get out of it because of other extracurricular stuff I was nice. uh, well doing. Yeah, you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned before um, controversial stuff because it's so funny. You know, I think that's like there, there are multiple types of interviewers, obviously. There are people who don't care about the relationship with the person and don't care how the other person feels. And there are those who do, <laughs> you know, and sometimes, you know, option one, does do better in the short term sometimes often most of the time all the time they get more clicks you know when they do it that way but for somebody who wants to do it long term or make a career out of it how much weight do you put on making sure that the other person feels good instead of going for what's controversial in that relationship uh it's a balance it's an ongoing conversation we have internally because you know, everything we do is predicated on access. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we can't have a show if we're unable to make the people we want to profile comfortable and welcoming us into their homes or spending half a day or a day with us or whatever it is. Uh, and there, there's, I, I recognize the value in having the opportunity to get that access. I also think when you get that access from a very known individual, um, they have an expectation, whether justified or not, that you're going to be fair to them. Uh, fair, we always want to be. Uh, every once in a while, though, the situation comes up where you have differing views of what fair is in terms of they say something that's highly newsworthy that should be out there if you're just basing what they said on, you know, journalistic values. Right. Uh, but, you know, the flip side of that is if you recognize that they've gone out of their way to give you tons of time, uh, if you recognize the fact that everybody talks, and, you know, when you're trying to book somebody, they're going to call somebody else and ask about their experience. You don't want to be in the business of people feeling like you're screwing them over. Uh, so the two come to a head on occasion. And uh, that's, that's challenging to navigate. But, you know, you try and just make the best decision you can and do what you think is right in those situations. A hundred percent. I think probably the best compliment that I can give you is that you're 
tremendous at not at interjecting at the right time or rather better put listening how no, how I much and it's true like that's you know how when you when you talk to other interviewers or you're talking to me right now where do you rank listening on the tier of important skills to have uh 1a or 1b right uh, I, I mean i probably 1b because first and foremost preparation and we put probably a hundred hours of research into each interview preceding the sit down and i think even if you like are a terrible listener and you just come very very prepared that's going to inherently make the person you're profiling more willing to give something that they wouldn't normally give to somebody else. Uh, but uh, listening is obviously everything too, because you know you need to not be thinking about what your next question is that you have on your note card that you want to ask. Otherwise, you're going to miss something they say that could elicit a, a follow-up and lead to something you never otherwise would have expected. Uh, that has, without question, been a, a developed skill for me, one that I still admittedly feel like I, I have a long way to go to get to where I'd like to be. But, uh, you know, there, there are a lot of people I really admired growing up and, and still do who I, I thought were, were excellent at that. Um, from Bob Costas, who um, I, I still have pretty regular communication with, to the late Mike Wallace of 60 Minutes, who mm. I actually interviewed on my high school radio show wow. back in the day, um, Howard Stern, Oprah, uh, mm. you know, so people from like all different backgrounds, but all, you know, I, I think really solid interviewers and or conversationalists. Yeah, no, that that's definitely important. Um, you said a hundred hours of prep. Yeah. What does that preparation look like? Is it going back and reading like their high school art, like the first stuff about them? Is it going for everything in between? Do you re listen to other interviews? How do you uh, and your team conduct that? Yes. So it's a collective effort. Um, it's myself, a couple of producers, a part-time researcher. Uh, I I read and watch and listen to everything of significance on the person we're profiling. Uh, so any consequential story or interview they have ever done, um, I have consumed it leading into the interview or, or leading into the interview. And you know, in the days leading up to it, you're you're taking notes, writing questions, uh, and then you know you slowly develop. The, the plan for questions uh, that way. So that's kind of how I handle it. Um, you know, nobody really ever told me like what I should or shouldn't do. And so that's just kind of the process for me that I found works well and gives me the confidence coming into it that I know everything I can about this person. Yeah, no, that's definitely great. If you could change one thing about the education side of journalism, what would you change and help the futures with? Uh, well, I, I would, in terms of how it would have helped me, and it's, I don't know that that's necessarily fair for me to even speak on since I, I really, you know, went to such a limited amount of communication school and when the school actually gets more involved I, I was already gone since that would have been later years of college but I think a, a skill that could help journalists uh, certainly could help me and could also help people just in all professions is selling yourself knowing how to sell I, I don't think that's a skill that's taught much in in school and one that I think is invaluable um, you know, teaching you how to pitch uh, and how to best present yourself. Uh, I think that would go a long way for everybody and is probably the single skill that I think is most important to anything that I do, absent the 
uh, actual interview because, you know, I, I created the business behind the show. So I'm still involved in developing sponsor relationships, uh, involved in developing distribution relationships, involved in booking guests for the show. So pretty much everything I do is sales absent the preparation and actual interview part of the, the taping. So sales is how I'd answer that. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's super interesting. It all just comes back around to kind of my version of how I look at that. It's just build your personal brand. Like no matter what you do in any walk of life, the bigger and better your personal brand is perceived, the more options and the more, you know, things you will have brought to your plate and the more of what you want to do, you'll be able to do. And I think that, you know, goes hand in hand with, with you and also building the personal brand of, you know, treating other people well and, and just kind of how you live the day to day. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's just helpful to have uh, the skill set to know how to pursue getting what you want confidently. Uh, and so I, I think a lot of people miss out on developing that skill. And I, I think it's really important. At the very beginning, back when you were just starting to do it, how would you reach out to people to get them on your show? Because now it's a little bit different. You know, you've obviously had, you have a name, you have the numbers, you have the TV, you have the digital presence, but how did you do it when you didn't have those things? Uh, and, and first, you know, again, still the long way to go to get yes. to go where I wanted to. And I mean, you know, I have pretty much no Instagram and Twitter followers, so it's pretty humiliating. Uh, on on uh, YouTube and, uh, you know, TV, though, you know, we have uh, decent traction. But back, back in the day, uh, I used to actually mail letters to people that I was interested in doing interviews with. And actually, when I first started in eighth grade, I went to the library, looked up home addresses for retired baseball players and Hall of Famers, and just mailed them a letter explaining the concept for this internet radio show that I was developing. And I got uh, four responses. Uh, Bob Feller, uh, Tim McCarver, Will Clark, and Ernie Banks called. And they would just call my parents' house at the time, I didn't have a cell phone. This is eighth grade. I guess probably now every eighth grader has a cell phone, but not then. Uh, and yeah, my parents would just answer and yell back to me and say, Ernie Banks is on the phone or, you know, whoever it might be. I still remember Will Clark, who had just retired after guiding the Cardinals to a, a playoff run uh, and had a kind of a challenged relationship with the media during his career. He called me from the hospital. His wife had just had a baby and he wanted to know if it'd be okay if we waited a few days on doing the interview. And I, I remember being on the phone with him. I, I was so nervous. I could not even speak uh, because I, I just couldn't believe that, you know, this guy I at the time like idolized uh, was calling me. So, you know, you do some of that and then, you know, that just takes you to the next thing and eventually you're emailing and calling and, you know, it's kind of now today it's a combination of all of the above with in-person meetings and uh, so on. But it's still a, a challenge getting access to the people we want access to because generally, you know, these are A-list individuals who don't need the sort of exposure that we would bring. Totally. And as far as your digital, do you ever shout it out on the air? Uh, we, we do. Uh, well, yeah, I'm, we shout out like YouTube uh, on the air. So, you know, we've tried to, to have each platform have its own distinct value proposition. And on, on TV, it's a half hour episode weekly that profiles, you know, one person. Uh, and then on YouTube, it's broken up by topic in clips. Uh, right. There's a lot of bonus content that's unable to make it into the TV episode due to time constraints, uh, you know, and then so on. So it kind of in terms of what content we put on what platform it varies based on the, the platform we're programming. All I know is if you ever did something like 
some kind of giveaway to build up your Instagram, you could 10 X it in a day with those TV and YouTube numbers. Yeah. Um, All right. We'll try it. Yeah. I mean, you would know your Instagram following is killing it. Yeah. yeah did, what, what allowed yours to take off? So when the kind of very brief backstory is when I was about the same age as, as you, but I was, so I'm 20 now, but I was, you know, 14, 15 and 2015. That's when Facebook was, was getting pretty hot on like the theme page side. So I decided, uh -huh. decided to start blogging about fantasy basketball. Um, and about that same time when I didn't make the JV basketball team, I'd moved to Connecticut, I started doing radio. So my high school, I was super lucky. Not at very few high schools have their own radio station. Mine did. Um, I started broadcasting the JV girls field hockey games and just kind of learning how to do that, that sort of thing. And, you know, building this fantasy basketball outlet on the side, realized that not enough people cared about it. So did started covering the entirety of the NBA on a different outlet. Um, built that to like 30, 40,000 or whatever in sophomore year of high school when I was doing this broadcasting stuff. And then my junior year, I realized that Facebook had just launched Facebook Live and I could take everything I was doing broadcasting, but instead of talking about the local JV girls field hockey team, I could talk about LeBron and Kobe. So I started doing that. Right. And, uh, and you know, all, all these other pages started to take notice and they asked if I would stream on theirs um you know hundreds of thousands of, of, of followers instead of you know mine which was much smaller and they would offer to pay me like 10 15 dollars and i'd always say no as long as i can self-promote myself so i just pushed the hell out of my personal brand right. every single time and uh and you know eventually certain companies started taking notice and i started hosting for the nba shortly after and, and other companies of that nature and um i launched my my basketball brand which is called hoops nation Right. Um, so I started building that up on Facebook and then Instagram and TikTok and all those and whatnot. But, you know, through and through all kind of an amalgamation of that um, and just spending a lot of time focusing on the algorithmic side of digital, both personal brand and public brand side. Just OK, that, that means what as it pertains to your platforms in terms of personal brand versus or the, the algorithmic side? Yeah. So I just knew that, you know, at the time on Facebook, the share was the most powerful thing on all of social media. So I started putting out videos that people would want to share. So like uh, feel good videos, I knew those did super well. So I would edit up these like fan hitting half court shot, LeBron tackling him. I remember it got like 75 million views on Facebook, like the little edit I did at 16, you know? So I just started doing that and I'm like, oh, this works. And then Facebook uh, started cutting organic reach for pages that weren't paying money because they just decided so yep. okay i gotta go to instagram now <laughs> so i went over to instagram and realized that just uh consistency giveaways um collaborating with other basketball pages doing edits for other pages so that they could shout me out for free and i didn't have to spend any money combined with adding in this original content that i was doing like from the radio side in high school um going to games and filming stuff that that's like high school and that sort of thing um just being on top of when are the right times for platforms so then like so instagram for example took four three and a half years to grow zero to a million on hoops nation tiktok zero to four million took five months wow because i was much earlier on tiktok than i was on instagram given that i still think the value of one instagram follower is worth about four to five times as much as one TikTok follower, um, just because of how, you know, much more advertisers, A, pay for an Instagram follower, and mm -hmm. B, um, how, how much difference you can see um, on TikTok posts from one to the other, and how most views on TikTok actually come from the Explore feed, no matter how many followers you have. Um, so I, I realized those sorts of things, but just paying attention and also putting, putting like yourself, you know, putting people in place who, who understand those better. So like TikTok's a much younger platform. So the kid who helps me is 16 who does that. Whereas Instagram, you know, my buddy Aaron who helps me with that, he's 25. So that makes more sense there. So just, you know, trying to be on top of the times that are best for platforms. But here's what I'll say. Yep. 
for you. Please, 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 please post multiple times a day on LinkedIn. Okay. It is the hottest organic reach and it is the most underrated platform right now. Okay. So for example, 30 likes on LinkedIn is equivalent to a thousand views. Okay. Whereas Instagram, 30 likes is equivalent to 30 views. They're <laughs> like 100 yeah. views or 200. Right. It's not even because LinkedIn wants to grow really fast. So they're just handing out free attention. And somebody okay. like yourself with you know all these high profile interviews and clips and all that kind of thing would crush LinkedIn. So, uh, okay, one, one other question. How has your ability to monetize the platforms where you have content compared to what you would have expected? So it, it really depends. Um, one thing I've learned is obviously it's, you have to know who's going to be advertising. So what, what I thought at the beginning, I was like, oh, the NBA is going to advertise. And then I realized very quickly, no, the people who are going to be advertising on this sort of content are going to be uh, artists, musicians, songs. They want their songs on the top. So then I started working with labels and I, I realized, you know, all right, how can I make this a little bit bigger? How can I run campaigns for other pages? So I started going to the labels being like, oh, I have this page and all my friends have these pages. Let me hook everybody up. So I realized that I could start doing that sort of thing. And I wouldn't have gotten it if I didn't have the Hoops Nation platform behind it. Okay. But being able to you know, make it a little bit bigger. But you know, in terms of like raw monetization from just the Hoops Nation platform, it's hottest during basketball season. So right now it's hot because it's the NBA playoffs. Um, and you know, it's, it's a lot... I guess the best way to put it is I thought people with a million followers would make a lot more on the brand side. The biggest thing, and I have a few points to make here because there's a lot to break down and package. And I think it'll also be valuable for people listening and think, thinking of going into this space. A million followers on a personal brand and a million followers on a brand brand are two very, very different things. You can charge so much more for a personal brand and so much less for a media brand but you can run a lot more ads on the media brand than you can on the personal brand. So somebody with a million followers might charge $20,000 a post on a personal brand, whereas on a media brand, it might be hundreds or, or thousands, whatever it is, um, but they can run a lot more. So that was another thing that I very quickly realized. Like my personal brand, I charge a lot more for somebody to advertise, even though it's you know, one eighth as big as the media brand. And that was one of the biggest surprises and shocks that I learned, but it's, it's good to know going in. What do you think the average person with a million followers makes on Instagram? It's all based on their engagement rather mm -hmm. than their followers. So if somebody's getting 100,000 likes per post and they're all legit, US-based, um, you can see them charging 20,000 plus per post, 10,000. And how many posts? are they making over the course of a year or how many posts like that do you think they can get over the course of a year i mean it's all it's all just going to come down to them their relationships can they create good content that performs well for advertisers um you know like yourself it's like you know uh you could get one big interview but you know if you if you're really talented, you're going to get a lot of big ones. So it's yep. just a matter, it's more a matter and how like you are with your networking because that's, that's all of it as well. So it's really more of a relationship thing when it comes to really cashing in when you're a really big influencer. Um, because the relationships for the influencers are mainly with their, the agency or network that represents them as opposed to with the individual brands. Yeah. Okay. I think that's where a lot of people are missing out because you need people like you realize very early on, you need people a lot less than you think you do. Get it. And I think that is very true in the social media and influencer world. Um, but granted you also like, if you're independent, you could incentivize four different people. Like, yeah, if you bring me anything, like take a, like you deserve a cut. Yeah. Right. Know? instead of somebody's locked down and might might not be able to um but yeah i think but as far as linkedin i'm telling you man it's it's the one right now 
I'm posting five to 10 times a day on LinkedIn. Wow. And do you create all those yourself? It's all written. So it's just, I use it like I use Twitter. Mm -hmm. um, so there are a lot of people out there who tweet 30 times a day. You know, they should just copy over anything that would be more applicable to like the business. But even then, yeah. it's just broadening out. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what I would say there. I'll, I want to ask you, though, about the TV front. Because that is a world I know nothing about. How do does one even get a show on TV? Because you own it. And right. that's very impressive. Um, but how does how does that all happen? And how does syndication work? How do you make that happen? Uh, I had no, I mean, probably similar to you. I had no idea what I was doing when I, I first started. I, I just figured I, I, I knew I wanted to have it on this platform and, you know, how do you do it? And so I just traveled around the country meeting with uh, individual stations in each city uh, because I'm not on, you know, not on NBC or Fox in every, like you can't find me on NBC in every single city across the country, but you can find me on NBC in, you know, LA, Philly, Dallas, San Francisco, Miami, et cetera. But then I'm on Fox in, you know, New York, Chicago, Atlanta, except, you know, so it's syndication. So I just went city by city meeting with each affiliate training to, you know, do deals uh, and had no idea what terms to ask for or who to meet with. And you just kind of figure it out as you go along, ask a lot of dumb questions. And uh, that, that was that. It, uh, takes a lot longer to scale when you're independent, when you don't have a network backing mm -hmm. you or some big production company. But uh, I think there's a lot of value in having control and owning the content. And the biggest thing to me was, uh, you know, when I, when I got laid off of NBC in 2009, I had to cancel interviews with Jack Nicholas, uh, with Condoleezza Rice, who had just finished his, you know, secretary of state and I was humiliated and, you know, the show was performing digitally equal to what they were expecting, but to no fault of my own because of the change in the economy, I was out of a job. So I just told myself I'd like to avoid being in that situation again. And so I thought if there wasn't a single entity distributing my show, but I had a bunch of different entities and now, you know, we have a multi-platform show. So we're on, uh, you know, the ABC and NBC, ABC, NBC, CBS, and Fox stations domestically, then it re-airs on cable through, you know, Fox Sportsnets, NBC Sportsnets. Uh, we have a handful of international TV partners. We're online through, you know, YouTube primarily, and then, uh, you know, Facebook. We have a podcast we just started. We're on video screens and taxi cabs, uh, et cetera. Uh, so I, I, I just told myself if we can have a lot of different platforms that, lessens the chance for downside if one goes away. It takes a lot longer to scale, and that's the challenge, but um, I, I like the fact that I had control largely over my own destiny then. Yeah, I mean, that's the best. And you're, I mean, diversifying makes the most sense, especially when you're bridging between literally multiple universes in the sense of TV and online. <laughs> There's yeah. just separate, you know, universes. Um, and, you know, both have tons of benefits in their own right. Um, but yeah, that's, that's super interesting. And I can imagine, I, I've honestly, and I'm, I think I'm very lucky in a sense, but I've never had the experience as to where some, something was like changed without it coming through me in a sense, because everything I've done has pretty much just been small by myself, but, um, but you, I mean, you don't give yourself enough credit, obviously, because you have great reach and, you know, you figured out how to do it yourself and do it through new technology and uh, all that. So, I mean, you yeah. deserve a lot of credit. Thank you. But we, we share that, um, you know, that, that emphasis that, and the value that we put on things, you know, coming through through the through 
the way that you see it and then it actually going on air in the same way because I can only imagine it being the most gut-wrenching feeling in the world when you do something you think is awesome and it doesn't see the light of day. And that's one of the reasons, honestly, that I recommend uh, like doing live content because there is no way anyone can mess that up. Yeah, right. No, I, I hear you. I mean, what, luckily, yeah, I mean, we, we control what we, you know, put on air now, but like before, before I did this, it was right. I mean, I, I had no control over anything. So, and you know, how you edit and produce a piece of content makes all the difference in the world too, because you could produce it one way, it could look horrible and you could produce it another way and it could be emotionally gripping and go viral. Mm, definitely. So I want to ask you, you have a lot of fun with guests on air, but who have you had the most fun with off air? Like when you're, there's a lot of time in between when you're shooting, you're just, you know, hanging out, you're shooting and whatnot. Who have you had the most fun with off the cameras? Uh, I, okay. I, I actually, I don't have a, a great immediate answer that, that comes to mind, but I'll mention two people that, for kind of a, a combination of on and off air. Um, one, uh, Mike Tyson, and this wasn't necessarily fun, but uh, many years ago, he was our season debut episode. And his wife told me, you know, I'll give you minimum an hour, but if it's going well, he could spend all day with you. And uh, like 45 minutes in, I asked a question that it was about, Teddy Atlas, his former trainer, holding a gun to his head when he was 15. Significant moment, but insignificant relative to everything else that's happened to him in his life, and nothing was off limits. Uh, his response to every question after that was, I don't know, and I could just tell by the look on his face, he was, he was not happy with me. Uh, and so the interview was effectively over. Minutes later, we were asked to leave. As the crew's packing up his house, I get his guy to let me go out back and thank Mike before we leave because Mike was behind his house uh, with his pigeons because he breeds pigeons. Uh, and so, one that, does. yeah, right. Uh, so that thank you turned into a two hour conversation, just the two of us off camera behind his house talking about all sorts of different stuff and allowed Mike to develop at least a little bit of trust in me. And so he then invited us back the next day. We spent like half the day with him wow. and all the difference in the world. So that was something that comes to mind in terms of how it benefited the taping. Um, another one that we did that was also in Vegas, um, most of this was uh, on camera, but it was with uh, Dan Bilzerian, who you probably know of like Instagram fame, uh, apparently won you know, a hundred million dollars playing poker and has, you know, a lot of like crazy stories. Very uh, interesting couple, guy. Yeah. A couple of heart attacks and a Coke and prostitute filled partying night. Very uh, different and, from you and I. <laughs> and, uh, knows, uh, I mean, very different than me. I don't know about you. You were telling me, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, but you know, so the taping was supposed to start at noon, uh, didn't end up starting till three because he didn't wake up till one. Uh, and then, you know, we sit down for a few hour interview, then we have, uh, a lunch, uh, afterwards, you know, his like private chef cooked for us. Then we go out, uh, and he is this like souped up ATV, but one that goes like 120 miles an hour. So, uh, he had us in, in that we had to stop at some point because there was a four seater in the audio tech in the back was like 60 and was thrown up out the side of it. And uh, then we stopped just as like the sun setting uh, and he has tons of guns and he has this like Rambo style shoot from the hip, $2 bullet type uh, machine gun. And so we start firing those things off and then he has dynamite sticks that we throw off and some of that, like he didn't want out there. So we left a little bit of that out. Uh, and then we're like driving back now at dark, flooring it through the desert, going like a hundred miles an hour. And all of a sudden he starts texting. And 
I'm like, first it's dark. Second, you literally can't see anywhere you're going and we're going a hundred miles an hour. And now he's texting. And I'm like, you know, literally like my life is flashing in front of my eyes. I ask him like, I'm like, Dan, like, come on, man. (laughs) Like, let's focus. Um, And so it was Floyd Mayweather Jr. Floyd was training for his final, like out of his career. Um, and we drive off the desert dirt road onto the highway and go to then Floyd's gym to hang out with him at the gym. Uh, only to then when that gets finished at like one in the morning, go back to Dan's house for a tour of his, you know, palatial estate. And then we had like five thirty AM flights back. So we literally go from there to the airport to fly home. So that was like one that, you know, um, yeah. So I would be so spooked if I was in that ATV and Dan Bolzerian was driving a hundred miles an hour in the dark while texting and driving. Right. Um, oh, okay. One, one other one. Um, I don't know if you know who Sir Richard Branson is, but the I know um, who Richard, yeah. Sir Richard Branson yeah. is like British, you know, billionaire entrepreneur Legend. who does also all these record setting world adventures has written a couple books. His autobiography is awesome. And he like, long been one of these holy grail bookings for me and i tried many times through people and you know they were like he's never going to give you the amount of time you want maybe he could do 20 minutes and so i had when that was offered previously i turned it down because i'm like you know only one shot to do this and if i'm going to do it want to do it right but you know the booking was going down 20 minutes yeah turned down 20 minutes because you're only going to get one i was only going to get one shot and i really wanted to you know, do the taping that I, I was hoping to get with him. Got it. And wow. so I was in uh, Monaco for work. Uh, this is like late October. Had a couple days to kill before going back to the States. I like hiking. So I was looking for someplace I could be active. Weather's hit or miss that time of year in Europe. Uh, North Africa is a few hour flight from the Nice airport. So I'm like, oh, I'll fly to North Africa. Second highest mountain in Africa is there. They have good hiking uh you know can beat around there for a, a couple days and so it was looking for a place to stay uh branson has lodges all over the world you know like hotels that people can stay at so i'm thinking to myself oh i could stay at his lodge there and then i could follow up with his people afterwards saying hey could we revisit the request by the way i just you know stayed at one of his hotels in this right. obscure region um and so first day I'm there, I'm walking back from breakfast and there he is sprawled out on a lounge chair by himself, just screwing around on his oh. iPad. And my heart is like pounding, you know, I'm thinking to myself, this is, this is my chance, you know, like I'm never going to have a, another opportunity to go up and just introduce myself to somebody like that. Uh, and so I like sit down probably 20 yards away in another lounge chair and I'm like, running through my head like what can I how how should I introduce myself he's gonna think I'm crazy like what do I say and so I just go up and uh ask him about hikes nearby and uh that leads to us talking for a while he wanted to know what I was doing there by myself and uh he invites me to play chess with him asked me to play chess with him and then him and his personal assistant invite me to dinner and drinks uh that night and then a month later, we were with him for a, uh, a week in the Bahamas taping an episode of the show. So Holy cow. So, yeah, and that, that was one of those moments where, like, you know, you're getting drunk with, you know, Richard Branson on a rooftop in the middle of nowhere in North Africa, an hour and a half outside of Marrakesh, high in the Atlas Mountains. It's like, that's, that was cool uh so crazy yeah and that that kind of goes to something that i've sort of always believed and it's just like if nobody doesn't the only way that somebody doesn't have time for you or for anybody for the most part is if they don't want to do it you know you made richard want to do it and all of a sudden his incredibly busy schedule became very gram friendly <laughs> yeah i mean look to your point everybody makes time for what they want to make time for right. and so 
you know, like we just uh, I just did a three-hour taping with uh, Tom Hanks. That's, uh, that's going to that so cool. Yeah, season 11. And I managed to track down his email address like four years ago. And just been emailing with him every so often over the course of four years. And finally, you know, he had the time to, to do it. And is the nicest, most generous guy in the world. It was an awesome taping. Um, but it's, you know, that sort of stuff takes time. And I, I oftentimes have to tell myself, all right, be patient. Like, you know, you're in this, this is, you're in this for the long run, you know, and so just calm down. And so, yeah. Totally. And the first question I asked you is what your best advice would be. And that plays very, what well, plays very nicely with that right. and how, you know, things take longer than you think. And sometimes you had to massage these relationships to get them to a point where Tom Hanks, AKA Woody would sit right. down with you for three hours like that. Right. That's the best. Who have been some of the other nicest, like just good people that you can show love to here? Uh, I, I mean, so many, uh, you know, we just obviously did Dak Prescott. Uh, he was great. Spent the day with him in Dallas. We, uh, before that, um, we did, uh, actually Tony Romo. So it was funny, uh, you know, NBA postponed their season March 11th. Yep. Um, the week before that, we were in Serbia for two days with Novak Djokovic taping an episode, and we flew from Serbia to Dallas to tape Tony Romo for his first interview after he signed that record-setting CBS broadcasting contract extension. We got back from that the night of Monday, March the 9th, and then Wednesday the 11th, you know, everything shut down. Um, but yeah, I mean, for the most part, everybody we profiles pretty nice. Uh, you know, we generally have good experiences with everybody. Um, there, there are some people that are, you know, you do, you have more fun with than others just by nature of what uh, you're doing with them. But, um, you know, we did Kelsey Grammer recently. We is this massive estate in the Catskill Mountains in upstate New York. We um, did Kelly Slater, uh, you know, best surfer ever to live. We taped him once before in uh, Malibu, um, but he created this amazing surf ranch with artificial wave technology in Fresno, California. So he had us out there to, you know, surf with him. And I, I can't, you know, surf at all. So it was kind of funny. Um, and then, uh, yeah, just kind of, you know, random people, but everybody's, uh, you know, generally, you know, pretty nice. We did two days in Monaco with Prince Albert, uh, you know, taping one, the afternoon with Steph Curry, uh, you know, and, and so on. That's awesome. So uh, to close this out here, I kind of want to ask you where, obviously it's doing, it's doing pretty damn well right now. But you, you've said a few times that it's nowhere near where you want it to be. Where do you want it to be? And I assume nobody has ever done what you want to do. Yeah, I mean, right. I, I mean, we're figuring it out as we go along. Uh, there's no person or entity that we're modeling this after. Maybe that's good. Maybe that's bad. I that's think time good. will probably tell. Uh, I, I think... My goal is for our content to have the widest audience possible, get the best access we can to the top people we can, and have our content regularly breaking through the clutter, getting people talking, making news. Uh, I, I think long term, there's the desire to open it up more. So, you know, one week we have Tom Brady on, the week after that, President Obama, the week after that. Tom Hanks, the week after that, we're in some far-flung region of the world doing a human interest story. Uh, Long-term, I think that's the desire on, you know, my end, but... Uh, authentic Tonight Show. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, I mean, I, I've always been aware of the fact that I don't want to do a daily show. Right. Um, that's just not me. But if, you know, we do 26 a, a year and, you know focus on access and quality and, you know, so on. Uh, 
and yeah, that's kind of the goal. So I think we've created the foundation for something that has the potential to grow, but, uh, and we, it's possible we could achieve all our dreams, but have a long way to go. And, you know, it's just a matter of grinding and hustling and figuring it out as we go. Damn, that's great. If you could interview, I'm going to give you an interesting one here. If you could interview anybody who either a historical figure or somebody, any, the qualifications are anybody who's been dead for over a hundred years, who would you want to sit down? Over a hundred years. Over a hundred years. Nobody. How, how about we go like, how about we go 50 years? All right, fine. 50 years. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, uh, Hitler. <laughs> I mean, how amazing would that be? Um, you know, to have the opportunity to sit down with somebody that consequential for all the wrong reasons, right. uh, but I think he'd be an interesting interview. Uh, Very interesting. Lincoln. Um, oh, that'd be a game. You know think of uh, a number but uh yeah i would I'd, I'd say hitler yeah i would go if i'm given the opportunity i'm going way back i'm going i mean jesus would be interesting yeah. <laughs> that would be a breaking interview uh like egyptian kings and queens that would be very interesting trying to think who else like lincoln george washington those would be very like, hey, right. oh my god that would be that would definitely get through the clutter um, <laughs> yeah <laughs> well my friend uh where can people find you and season 11 best sure uh well two things you can go to grahambensinger.com to check out uh tv airtimes in your region and then youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger to watch clips and all archive video from the show. And follow the man on Instagram at Graham yeah. Bensinger. Check him out on Twitter as well and LinkedIn coming soon. My there friend, thank you so much for doing this. It's been a, it's been a blast. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Buster. Appreciate you having me. Awesome. See you guys. Boom. <laughs>